0: The Don't Drown Podcast would like to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land in which we record on. We honour and pay our respects to Elders past, present and future, as well as Indigenous languages and cultural practices that are seated on all lands throughout Australia. We acknowledge that storytelling, wisdom and healing has been an integral part of Indigenous practices for eons. So when we share our stories, impart wisdom and provoke healing, we pay homage to the sacred ceremonies that these practices derive from.
1: Hi, and welcome to Don't Drown, a place for all you self-growth seekers navigating the ebbs and flows of life. We are your hosts, Talia Venn and Ebony Warmucky.
0: This podcast will be centred around the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual components of self-exploration and development.
1: We will be delving deep on those tougher topics to have you feel more seen, heard, and equipped to deal with this thing that we call life. So
0: stay afloat with us as we laugh, cry, and try not to drown.
1: Today's guest is an absolute angel of a human being, the true definition – of Sunshine Energy. Angie Vasquez is a masseuse and coach whose passion is to help women heal through using the healing techniques of manifestation, meditation, movement, and self-reflection. In today's episode, we will touch on everything from the impacts of childhood sexual abuse, as well as being diagnosed with ADHD in your 30s, and so much more. We are so thrilled to have you join us today, all the way from Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the podcast, Angie. Yay!
2: Yay! Thank you so much for having me here. I'm (laughs) really
1: excited. (laughs) No, thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to have you, and it's really just nice to connect with people, because we've obviously been following each other for a while now on social media. It's really nice to connect with people and then to take that one step further and then to you know collaborate with people and get to know people more it's so I love it
2: (laughs) yes it makes me the world feel so much smaller
1: yeah it's so nice it's like oh it's so nice to know that like we can just connect with people and it's all at the you know tip of our fingers fingers. yeah (laughs) yes So you're in Phoenix, Arizona, and from my understanding, your parents actually immigrated to America from Mexico, is that correct?
2: Yes, that is correct. They were here about, they've been here for like almost 40 years now. I am about to turn 35, so it's, yeah, a little bit more than that. And they're from a part of Mexico called Guerrero, and that's Mm -hmm. like down, um. It's like south of Mexico City in the map, if you can kind of guess that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess growing up with parents who did immigrate to America and obviously different sort of cultural backgrounds to, you know, um, the traditional American family, like how did you find that growing up? What was that like for you?
2: It was a little tough because it's like your parents are trying to instill their culture and their beliefs but then you know you go to school and then you feel like i don't belong here and and like even just now it's like it's finally becoming cool to be like hispanic in the u.s yes.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> like back in the day it's like you were trying to hide it and i don't think it was the only one i think a lot of people felt like i don't know like we had to hide our hispanic side because you know if we mispronounce something or if we you know try to explain like our food it's like or even our music like sometimes Americans would be like oh have you heard this and I was like well my mom really listened to this other uh musician which you will never know about so it was just it's just a little bit of like hard to assimilate and then having to stay grounded in our
1: roots Mm -hmm you're so right though. It is like finally cool to be Hispanic. And like, even my, my son, he's four and a half and he, you know, watches his YT kids and he's like, mom, I want to be Spanish. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> mom, you can be Spanish if you want to be Spanish. I do hate that. It
0: has to be cool for you to feel accepted. You should be accepted regardless.
2: Oh my God. Yes. I feel like it was so hard growing up, especially, um, I think of my, uh, when I turned, when I went to fourth grade, that was the first year where it was all English. And I, before that I had been going to like bilingual schools and, um, so in fourth grade, I felt like a failure. I felt so alone. All the kids there had been going at that school since they were in kinder. They mm. they knew they were fluent in English. And even though they were Hispanic, some of them were. And I just felt so alone. And I feel like that feeling can come back, you know, as an adult sometimes too.
1: Yeah. And I do think too, especially in, you know, school settings, um, it... I think especially in our generation too, the ostracization at school and Mm -hmm. the segregation between groups in school. Did you experience that a lot? Um,
2: I did. Well, especially like that grade, I felt like I was only a new kid and everybody else knew English already. Yeah. And I just felt, I felt so alone. And I think I think that was a year that I I think I was outside a lot. And so I'm already kind of fair-skinned, dark, and then with the sun I just like became even darker. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I mean, what a challenge, then, like having to assimilate to a new school, but English not being your first language. That's just a whole whirlwind of things to navigate. And it's so
1: interesting. I just caught something that you said with, you know, having Um, going in the sun and getting darker skin. For me, so we're part Polynesian, but we're fair-skinned. So in the Polynesian community, we're seen as white. Um, And so for me, I remember when I – I think I was like seven or eight. I went outside and put mud on my skin to try and make my skin brown because in my Polynesian community, I was seen as white and didn't feel accepted. So it's so crazy how regardless (laughs) of, you know, your background – Especially when you move to different countries or you're, you know, um, biracial or half-caste, you feel like you have to try so hard to fit in and you don't feel like you do.
2: Yes. Oh, my gosh. That uh, I can imagine you being so cute trying to put yourself with mud oh my god <laughs> yeah it,
1: look it didn't end well but the intention was there if only I knew about fake tan <laughs> so then growing up for you like in your family dynamic what was your dynamic like what was home life like for you
2: um growing up it's so funny because growing up you think everything's normal and then you go to therapy and you're like oh wait a lot of those things were not normal
1: a hundred percent it's it's the biggest shock horror going to therapy you're like oh shit seriously
2: I'm like oh my god I thought I had a normal childhood because my parents were together that I think growing up that was like the biggest indicator whether you had a normal childhood is Mm -hmm. if your parents were together but like now I look back and I was like oh my god they were really toxic until this day she has a lot of like shaming tendencies like um it's hard for her to I think get what she wants or like communicate in a way that is loving so -hmm. she'll like make you feel guilty in order to for you to be there for her and so then it just doesn't feel very good and I know like it's a lot of it lot has to do with like how she grew up and all of that but sometimes it can be very hard and so I've had to learn how to like put more boundaries of like because a lot of the times she used to dump on me a lot. I was her like therapist since I was little where she would just like, as soon as she opens the door, I opened the door. I'm like, she would just start telling me everything was, that was wrong or like, hey, I need help with this. And I'm like, um, hello, how are you?
1: <laughs> yeah. And it can be hard to play that role as the child. Because you obviously look to your parents for guidance and then to feel as if they're, you know, dumping on you or looking to you for guidance. It does create that sort of feeling within you where, you know, like you said, you can often grow up without not knowing how to put boundaries in because that hasn't been taught to you from the beginning
2: exactly and then that's where the people pleasing like starts as well because then Mm -hmm. you feel like everybody's emotions they
1: depend on you and if they're not okay it's because you did something wrong yeah yeah and it's such a vicious cycle to be in it's so challenging and then what was your relationship with your dad like um my dad
2: grew up uh, when I grew up he was Drinking so much, um, he still drinks, and so he, I like again when I went to therapy, they're like, oh, so he was an alcoholic, and I was like, well, he drank a lot,
1: and I was yeah. like, oh my god, he was, <laughs> and he is, yeah. yeah. But and but when so you're in crazy. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did that impact you growing up? Like, obviously, when you're in it, it just was your normal, I guess, when you went to therapy, and you had that realization, then obviously, those flashbacks of your entire childhood would have come up. What was that like for you?
2: Uh, it was really hard, because I, um, I was his favorite, like I'm using quotation marks, like I was his favorite child, right? I felt like, oh yeah, I was his favorite, but what did I really get? I didn't really get much that title of I was his favorite child, but I never really got like what I would see like a normal, healthy relationship between dad. And his favorite daughter, it would be like he would be giving her the world. And I look back and I was like, I don't feel like I did. I feel Mm -hmm. like I was just very much taking care of him as well. Like I remember my mom telling me like, hey, tell him to come inside because he has his music really loud and the cops are going to come. And I was really little. So for me, it was like that was my responsibility to take care of this grown man who is out of control and take him inside and so i feel like it was sad because as i grow up i'm like i wanted more of an intimate um what is it called like an intimate relationship with him like emotionally be able to bond with him but he's never been one of those people that can communicate his feelings or you know like he'll tell me he loves me but he's never been able to share with me his whole life and his story Mm -hmm. and I'm like and now that I see like his past and you know his drinking problem like I just wonder like how much more there is that he could be holding back but obviously he hasn't felt
1: safe to share and I think it's one of those things that we don't obviously realizes children that our parents are flawed human beings and it's not until mm-hmm. we become adults where we go, Oh wow, we were actually raised in, in you know, air quotes by by adult children. Mm-hmm. That can't regulate their emotions and that are unable to teach us how to do that and so that's yeah why I think having these conversations is so imperative to our own healing because then it helps us put ourselves in that adult seat and um you know start to heal our own wounds
2: yes I love how you said that like one of the things I picked up from my dad was like be very active which is not it's not cute when you're in a relationship yeah. but yeah <laughs> like just being very reactive it's like you know he would get upset and he would just like leave or you know like for example his food got too cold and he wasn't like this all the time so it was just you know i'm guessing like when he was tired or triggered or whatever and i feel like sometimes when like my husband has tried to explain like hey i'm upset about this like i'll get reactive instead of like being able to talk like an adult and like self-soothe and like not to get it defensive like that's been one thing that's been really hard for me to be to um to work on and I think the other thing was I never had someone really hearing my feelings like someone to sit down and be like I see that you're upset let's talk about why you're upset like no like if I was upset I would just cry and go to the room so like as mm-hmm. an adult it's been really hard with especially in my marriage, for me to just be like, I like even acknowledge I'm upset and this is what I'm upset about and feel like it's a safe space for me to say that. And that's because I'm just scared that I'm not going to be heard.
1: Yeah, and it's like that emotional abandonment piece, you know, and I hear you so much because I've struggled with that too in my own relationship when me and my partner would have our differences and he would, you know – tell me how he feels and I would perhaps be triggered and my first immediate response um, if I am really triggered is to get up and clean or get up and try and avoid the conversation by putting the washing in the machine or and it's like wait no 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 I've got to try and sit here and breathe through this and actually you know respond when every part of my body is like I want to flee I need to go <laughs> And he's like, why do you always do the washing when we're having an important conversation? Why are you always washing the dishes? And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry, I need to stop. But it's that fear of being heard when you haven't ever Mm -hmm. been heard and that fear Mm -hmm. of having to take on board somebody else's feelings. But I think also when you perhaps haven't been taught those skills, it can come across as like that defensive mechanism. You're trying to protect yourself and then you can come across as quite defensive.
2: Exactly. And I think it takes like a lot of mat- emotional maturity to be able to acknowledge that in another person, and especially in the middle of an argument. A hundred percent.
0: So I just want to switch gears a little bit and still talk about your childhood. So I understand that you've had experience with child sexual abuse. What were the impacts of that abuse on you as a child?
2: So I was abused about five or six um, and I didn't, I, I just remember kind of hiding, feeling like I did something wrong because my mom had told me like, don't let no one touch you. but. I did let him and so for me it was like oh shit like my mom told me don't let anyone touch you right but then at the same time shoot like I said she has this tendency of like making you feel like shame and guilty and so for me once it happened and I did let him do that um I felt a lot of shame and I felt like well I can't tell my mom you know because if I do, like, I'm going to be in trouble because I I did what she told me not to do. And yeah. so for a long time, I think I didn't think about it. I think I started thinking about it until like 20s. And yeah. I think for a, a long time, I just kept thinking like, it was a dream. It was it was a nightmare. Like, that didn't really happen. And I just kept trying to like put it in the back of my head. And so finally, I talked to one of my best friends at the time and she said to, so she suggested to go to therapy. And then that's when I f- finally told my therapist. And like, that was the first time I had ever told someone besides my best friend at the time. Um, One of the biggest impacts was that I just grew up feeling so much shame. And I feel yeah. like, that shame was like towards little things big things and anything in between like I just didn't feel guilt and guilt is like I did um when someone feels guilty it's like I did um, I made a mistake and when someone feels shame it's I'm a bad person and for Mm -hmm. me it was like anytime that I did a mistake it was like I was a bad person so I grew up with a lot of shame and I think it just I feel like it's really, like, gone away, like, I don't know, in the past year, year and a half, like, where I still feel it every once in a while, but it's not as intense as before. It's taken me a really long time, and I started going to therapy when I was, like, uh, 23, I want to say, and I'm 34, mm-hmm. so um, I dealt with shame. Uh, one of the things that I did to cope with... um. My overthinking, which I didn't know until last year, is that I had ADHD. So, I don't Okay, so one of the things is that I was diagnosed last year with ADHD, but back in my early 20s, one of the things that I did to cope with my overthinking, and I think some of that shame, was overdrinking. So, Mm -hmm. I would drink, and I was a tiny thing, so it didn't take very much for me to, like, black out and then that would even like intensify the shame spiral I would feel even worse and so for the longest time I feel like it wasn't even about yeah I just I think with that I felt shame and then like sexually I felt dirty like it just Mm -hmm. didn't feel like sex was like a big loving thing it felt like dirty especially because my mom one of the other things she would say is like boys only want you for one thing so like all those messages all you know put together it's like also like trying to be sexy or anything like that it felt wrong yeah like with different clothes or stuff like that it felt like I don't want to provoke someone so then Mm -hmm. that like you know put that on me instead of like other people that and for them to take responsibility
0: i know you said that your mom always said to you don't let anyone touch you but did you know what that meant like did you have any awareness of child sexual abuse before your experience
2: well not really i mean i think she said like don't let anyone touch your private area but like Mm. that's it i don't and that's the thing I i don't think that's like how it started you know um And so that's probably how it, like, I
1: don't know how it happened, if that makes sense. Oh, 100%. And I feel like with children, um, obviously, depending on their age, and and when you start to speak to them about their bodies and the importance of people not touching their bodies, them not touching other people's bodies, I feel like the conversation is so nuanced. I feel like it's so layered and it's something that needs to be constantly spoken about to make them also feel safe around if that does happen, how we handle that. And it seems like in your experience, just having that sort of comment being made, um, but no sort of context around it. it it makes so much sense how then you felt so much shame because you felt like you you did something wrong when in actuality you didn't do anything wrong. But so many victims, survivors of sexual abuse do feel shame because they do feel like they provoked it or they did something wrong or they could have done something different to prevent it.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing for parents to know is like to really create that safe environment for their kids to make mistakes so that i think you. i mean i hear i hear parents all the time just getting mad about a kid spilling milk for example Mm, so like mm -hmm. if a kid spills milk and you get like you know upset because you're stressed and all of that which i i'm not a parent but i do know that it is very stressful to have a job and have kids and all of this but like when parents react that kind of way for a spilled milk I think it's kind of hard for a kid to go to them if there's a bigger problem and so yeah so like my advice for parents would be like to really watch their reaction to their kids mistakes so that They become a safe space for their kids to go to them if they're they feel like they've been done a mistake. Like, for example, I didn't make the mistake, but I felt like I did, and for that reason, I wasn't able to go to her or my parents.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess as you kind of got older, you spoke about how that then manifested into, you know, drinking for you and um, those sorts of things. When it did come to that time, when you did tell your parents about the abuse, how did they respond? So
2: it was so crazy because I I started therapy around 23. I didn't tell my parents until 2020. So that was three years ago. And for me, it was like, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to deal with this. I started telling my friends and not because I'm like gossiping about it, but more like I was sharing my experience.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
2: some of them were willing to tell me about theirs and it gave them that courage, which was great. Um but they, they, there was this part of me that still kept feeling like I needed to tell my parents. And it's crazy how much, even as a 30-year-old, like, you still crave that validation from your mm-hmm. parents. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, one of the last things I needed for my parents to know and for them to tell me, like, that I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. So, thankfully, I I did tell them. And thankfully, they responded well. They did. They did believe me. They yeah. were upset. Um, at that point, I had already done a lot of therapy and work on that. So I was at
1: that point, I was more scared for how they would react. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just how wanted would them to <laughs> impact them emotionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was. But I think when you
0: do put the work into unpacking something, when you mm-hmm. do finally tell people that you care about, you are more concerned about them because you know that you've kind of worked through some of that stuff or the early stages where it's really can be really triggering or emotional for you you can speak about it but then you're like oh goodness how are they going to react to what I have to say
1: say, when you go through therapy you learn your toolkit. You learn what to put in your toolkit and what tools you need to help you move through those really challenging life altering experiences. When people haven't gone to therapy and they don't have a toolkit, they then use very unhelpful coping mechanisms or they spiral. And you being a natural nurturer, Angie, and you being a natural empathetic person and, you know, always playing that role of the people pleaser, your sort of instincts kick in and they're like, okay, I've got to, you know, make sure everything's okay you know I'm the diplomat here I've got to calm everyone down and make everybody okay when in actuality you're the one going to the table with this huge thing that's impacted you but your mind's like I need to make sure everyone else is okay but I guess in turn that's just a testament to who you are as a person really
2: thank you yes that's exactly what happened I feel like um, I did have because one of the things my mom said, like it was her fault, and in that moment, I didn't want her to take the for it, yeah, I wanted her to nurture me, and yes. I don't think she understood that. And I don't think a lot of parents understand that. That you know, when that happens, the kid doesn't, or you know, your children don't need for you to blame yourself, take the blame, yeah
1: they need you to love them yeah and keep them Mm -hmm. secure and safe
2: exactly and i don't think a lot of people understand that um Uh, But yes, that's exactly what I did. I started making sure that she was okay, that my dad was okay because he has like asthma. And so I was like, okay, like I hope, you know, when he takes the news that I don't want him to like hyperventilate or anything. And then my mom, like when she started feeling like it was her fault, I was like, no, the only one that's at fault is him for doing that. And so, yeah, I definitely went into that mode of like, let me make sure everyone else is okay.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I guess moving through your therapy, how did your life change aside from obviously being able to confront one of the most challenging things that you've had to go through and having to kind of deal with that? In what other ways did your life change through your healing journey? And what other healing modalities did you do?
2: I've done hypnotherapy, Reiki, other types like energy work that helps with like mm-hmm. um, lineages. I've done seminars, you know, where it's like seven day intensive, like mm-hmm. personal development, Um, you know, YouTube videos. Um, so I've done yeah. pretty much Uh, everything coaches as well. And now I actually am taking antidepressants and I'm taking this natural uh, supplements for ADHD. And so Mm -hmm. all those things have really helped me live a life where I feel more free because in the past I would feel shame. And now I'm like, okay, you can know everything about me. Like I'm not, I'm not holding back. Like not everybody deserves to know everything about me, but I don't Mm. have that like, uh, feeling of like I'm hiding so I feel very free um I'm 34 and I've quit my job three years ago and I feel like I'm retired so like (laughs) a lot of people (laughs) wait until they're like you know 60s 70s in America and like even working I'm working on my coaching stuff and I am doing massage therapy but like I have the flexibility I work with people that I love so I feel like all of this like Uh, inner work and personal development, all of that has really helped me get to a place where I feel more confident, more in tune with myself, more in tune with um, energy in the universe. And just feeling like very abundant and that doesn't like think of when people think abundant, they think like oh yeah your bank account has millions of dollars and for me abundance is like being able to take all the juice out of every day and i don't think a lot of people do that i think mm-hmm. a lot of people like pass you know they wait until the holidays or they went into a special day to like really feel fulfilled
1: mm-hmm. and right
2: now my life like even through the highs and lows like i feel
1: very much alive I love that, though, taking the juice out of every day. I love that analogy because I'm like, it's true, you know, even though I I remember um, having, I think we had this conversation, Angie, when we spoke previously just about, um, you know, if there was – A shitty morning that you might've had. And I felt like that too. And then you feel like, oh, my whole day is ruined. Like I've had a bad morning. Mm -hmm. My whole day is ruined. But when you get to a point where you're like, oh, that's just like one hour of 24 hours, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just one moment. And then I can focus on the rest of this day. And I I feel like, yes, um, framing it that way is, is so um, helpful overall and i think it's a
0: good way to try and find those pockets of happiness in every day because there are good moments in every day but you've just got to be willing to show up for them and experience them and enjoy them
2: yes i think a lot of people don't give themselves permission Mm. to enjoy moments when they're having a rough uh season And I think you can have a rough season and still have moments of joy, but you have to give yourself permission. And Mm -hmm. I think because we are so, it's so much easier for us to sulk in the sadness and the worry and the stress than to really feel happy because I think I think Brene Brown talks about about this, how people are so scared to be happy Mm
1: -hmm. because they
2: feel like it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. And it's like well so does the sadness but like everybody's so scared like oh my god what if the other shoe drops or what if you know this this is too good to be true and it's like how about you just understand that life is gonna
1: have both yeah and living in that duality and I think I remember when I was about 20 I was listening to this um CD that I had which was breath exercises and I remember during one of the breath exercises um, the meditation the guy that was guiding the meditation he said you know your your thoughts and your feelings are like cars passing by and I was like oh so I don't have to jump in every car like I don't have to be in every feeling I don't have to believe every thought like they're just they pass by like a cloud they pass by like a car and that really stuck with me and then obviously over time that expanded but it does and and once you can sort of really embody that it does make a world of difference to your overall happiness and peace
2: yes it does I think one of the best books that kind of shares that thought or explains that is the untethered soul
1: soul have you guys read that no I haven't read that
2: Yeah, uh, I think he explained something kind of like that, like in the like, I can't remember, it's been a while, but it kind of talks about that, like, how let's say you're on the freeway, and you like, things happen, or you see a tree, and you just let it flow, but then you see a car that looks like, like your ex's car, and then you attach an emotion to it. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. always have to be be that way yes like yes. why don't you make that car just like the same as a tree like mm. just let those things flow through you yeah.
1: um the book explains it better but yeah, it's kind <laughs> of the same similar thoughts <laughs> no that makes sense um kind of moving toward your recent diagnosis with adhd what i guess triggered you to go and get that diagnosis and was it something you always knew you you had or was it something that you kind of um became more aware of and then went to go and get a diagnosis what was that process like for you
2: I had no idea I had it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so
2: since growing up I've had more of well like OCD tendencies and they show up more like when um, I'm stressed out and overwhelmed. That's when I want things more like perfect and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, so it kind of happened by accident in a way well first my friend who's a therapist she's like let's do this um this questionnaire and she had done it and it said I had ADHD and I was like okay but then later I worked with her boss and so he was a therapist as well and one of the first things he had done was help um he had me fill out this questionnaire for ADHD and conditions mental health conditions but none of my other therapists had done that Mm. a lot of like they had never questioned me about any of those things they've you know maybe they suspected depression but none of them had um, that and so um, yeah right away it was like I had um, hyper focused ADHD I guess there's seven of them yeah um and so i'm like okay it makes sense a lot of times i get very irritable i think that's one of the ways that it showed up for me i think when people think adhd or at least what i thought for adhd was like people forgetting their stuff and i was hyper focused which means i was on top of myself even more (laughs) so like (laughs) like i don't i used my calendar since i was really really young and people when I was younger, they're like no, like nobody used calendars back in the day, yes. or at least not my age group. And then I always had a calendar. Like I always had to have things. And for me, it just became very it came natural because I didn't want to forget. So I didn't mm-hmm. forget, but because I used those tools automatically, they, I gravitated towards those right away. And so for that reason, I think I never thought I had ADHD, but that's because I was used to using my calendar. I was used to having reminders and brain dumps. Yeah, and that was all like a that.
0: normal for yeah. you. And
1: being in that hyper-fixated space where everything is organized and and that's the interesting thing because statistics show that you know women are less likely to be diagnosed until they are in their 30s 40s and 50s because it presents differently in them to, to men um, and you're so right because most people back in the day especially if we thought of ADHD I just thought of You know, this child that was, you know, uncontrollable, running around, you know, um, not able to focus, not able to retain anything, not able to get anywhere on time when it's, that's not how it presents in everybody.
2: Exactly. And the thing is, I wasn't able to focus, but I I had good grades and I don't think anybody caught it because I don't think I ever told anybody like I remember like reading was one of the hardest things for me because I couldn't just stay focused on it and but um but I was really good so for example it was I was really good at learning in class but like having to do homework on my own or doing things on my own it was just harder but I don't think anybody caught that because I was still doing good in school
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: and then even after after I quit my job in 2020, I had two years of being undiagnosed. I was feeling overwhelmed. One of my mentors even called me lazy. Yeah. And I, I felt so crappy because he was trying to, you know, help me and guide me. And I was like, not doing the things he was wanting me to do. But then I talked to my therapist. He's like, you're not lazy. It's like Mm. there's some other mental blocks. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people who procrastinate, who don't, you know, aren't able to take the actions for their goals. They think they're being lazy. And it's not that Mm. they're lazy. It's that sometimes your brain gets paralyzed because it's overwhelmed, overstimulated with different things. And it just doesn't know how to like, take action
0: or it does but
2: you know it's just a little bit harder for some people than others
0: no I definitely resonate with that so much I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD but a lot of the symptoms of that do mimic the symptoms of ADHD and that focus and procrastination piece and also um, like time paralyzed feeling like you've got an appointment Mm -hmm. and you just sit there waiting for it like you can't do anything else your brain won't let you do any other tasks but Constantly being labeled as lazy makes you feel like Mm -hmm. it's your fault, even when it's such an uncontrollable symptom of a diagnosis that you have. But, you know, when you don't have that diagnosis or people don't acknowledge it on face value, you can feel really isolated and you can really feed into those tropes of maybe I am lazy, but it's really important to be like, no, you're not. You've got ADHD and it's so okay.
2: Exactly. And it makes me so sad for so many kids in school because mm. like right now, uh, at least in America, like the um, what to call the way that it's structured, it needs to change there's more and more kids that have been diagnosed with ADHD and like to be sitting down in a school setting mm-hmm. for like nine hours or whatever long they're sitting down for, like that seems torture even for me as a 34 year old. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: and even people that don't have, that have a neurotypical mind, it's, fortress we're not designed like that you know mm-hmm. I mean for me we homeschool and part of the reason why we chose to homeschool was because of that reason wanting to teach our children that there's so many ways of learning opposed to just sitting down in front of you know a whiteboard or sitting down in front of your book you know we we learn in all different ways and I um, wonder if you felt like this like when you actually left school and stepped into the real world or even leaving your your job and getting to where you are now you probably feel like you have more ability to tackle daily tasks than you did when you were so confined and constrained
2: um yes um well one of massage therapists it was it worked out for me but yeah so I was able because I was moving And I was able to meet new people and things like that. So it was, but then what would happen? So, for example, sometimes I would do nine massages in one day. Mm. And let's say that day nobody wanted to talk, which is fine. Um, My mind would just like, I think it would uh, cause problems. Like, yeah, but there was no problems. So then I think um yeah like my mom was just going and racing while I was doing the massages and the massages were great but my mind was not okay and so coming off of that where everything was just pretty much like automatic I would just do massages with like I could probably do them you know kind of like in my sleep and to going into being my own businesswoman and having to learn marketing learning accounting and learning like all these different things, it became very paralyzing. So it was a little it was really hard the first two years. Yeah. Especially with other personal things that I had in my family happen. Um, it's just until this third year that I feel like I think after the diagnosis, after um some of that healing has been done, like I feel like I'm finally being able to feel like I'm getting a grip of okay, like a better rhythm of being self-employed and being able to tackle the things.
1: Yeah, and do you feel with the medication that's helped a lot as well for you? It has,
2: and I was so against taking antidepressants. I was like, Mm -hmm. no, I want to do it the holistic way. Like, I would... (laughs)
0: I was like like, give me
1: those pills I don't care (laughs) what it is give them to me I was like you Angie I was like no I want to try the holistic way it wasn't until I was up at night paralyzed in my sort of um you know I was having flashbacks and I was in this sort of panic state and I was like no I need I need something there's so much
0: stigma and misunderstanding about taking Um, medication for certain mental health issues but I think it's really dependent on the mindset of the person taking it what are you taking it for what do you hope to get out of it for me I'm like I want to take my medication because I know I need it right now help me get to a space where I can you know perhaps think a little bit more clearly than I am at the moment use my toolkit to hopefully get to a position where maybe there is a day where I don't need to rely on them anymore. But they're definitely not a means to an end. They just help you Mm -hmm. along the road.
1: Oh, they're literally a life raft when you're stuck out at sea without a paddle. I know, or but a lot of people see them as, like oh, take band-aid. your
0: medication. Yeah. You'll be fine. It's like it actually doesn't work that way. You still have to work <laughs> yeah. to heal while it you're just on makes them. It
1: easier for you to heal because it's like, oh, I feel shame. Cool. I'm not going to go downward spiral and, you know, I'm it just going feels to like acknowledge, oh, I feel shame. Yeah. Okay, how do I deal with it's this? It's like, like you're
0: like- climbing a mountain with a big pack- backpack and someone's just like, oh, I'll hold your backpack for A few miles, Mm, and you're like, Mm -hmm. I feel good, I can do this, but it's still a hard road, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we are pro
1: anti anxiety, pro antidepressants, Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) pro SRI,
1: pro SSRI.
0: (laughs) What advice would you give to adult females being diagnosed with ADHD?
2: Um, Well, for sure, use your calendar and have as many notes as possible. Like, don't depend on your brain to remember things. That's one of the things that I definitely don't do. I don't depend on my brain to remember things. No,
0: No, I I feel you. My notes app is clogged.
1: Angie, do you walk around with post-it stickers on you? Doctors at two. (laughs) (laughs) Appointment at nine.
2: (laughs) I don't, but I use alarms
0: and and like... um, When you were a kid, did you ever write things down on your hand to remember? um, Notebooks. I use notebooks a lot. But uh,
2: I didn't do yeah. it on my hands. My yeah, arm was full.
0: I, <laughs> I was just constantly, <laughs> I'm like, if it's on my hand, I know I'm going to see it. So I can't ignore it.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I remember my mom would tell me, like, she would go to work and tell me, like, let's say clean, wash the dishes. There were so many times that I would forget. Like, I wasn't being like, uh, like, I wasn't rebelling or anything. I just literally Yeah, being disobedient. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. literally just forget. I think until I was like 6 I started using the notebooks and like I just didn't stop. Um so I think that's one of the things I would really recommend. I would really um recommend well I do feel shame around it. I think a lot of people mm. when they have a label like oh you are depressed or you know you have ADHD all these things like automatically there's like a stigma around it and like you don't want that stigma to be stuck on you and it's a diagnosis doesn't mean that that's who you are it just Mm -hmm. means sometimes our brains just function a little bit different and it's okay and you know find the tools because there is tools and then find the medication if that's something you need as well some people i think ebony had said like some people just need that framework like okay like i have this so so i have to know that this is how my breed is going to work and some people like to have the medication so that they're able to function a little bit better and so i think it's good to have both of them um so that way you don't you know you're able to do more and i think one of the biggest such a superpower for people who have ADHD is that we're able to have so many different things in our brain and i think a lot of entrepreneurs are do have ADHD because it takes like a certain kind of mind to be able to hold so many things at once mm. so it is somewhat if a superpower
1: (laughs) but I think too something that I was just thinking of when you said it it, it's like if you're on a plane and you know if the plane is going down you're not going to say oh no I don't want the oxygen mask I don't want I don't want the um you know I don't want the inflatable jacket I want to do it the holistic way it's like no, no, no! <laughs> this plane's going down. So it's like someone well, just has
0: sage on them. No, so <laughs> I'm just up. gonna
1: sage myself, and hopefully, I'll let survive. me pull a tarot card. I'll let you guys know how we go.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where it's like you know, trying to I guess as as a society getting to that place where we feel more comfortable to go. You know what? My brain is this plane is crashing. <laughs> what th- what can I no, use? I
0: think the crux of it is accepting asking and giving yourself permission to have the help that you need
1: because mm-hmm.
0: a lot of it is shame based like oh I don't want mm-hmm. people to think I'm crazy for taking medication or I should be able to do this on my own it's like mm-hmm. says who but the more you says can who? educate
1: yourself on what those things are actually for and how they can actually help you the more you can then educate other people because um, people that don't live your experience or that come from a different experience there's always going to be that element of ignorance it just is you know in human nature to some extent unfortunately. But Education is the biggest way to, um, yeah, mitigate that that um, ignorance.
0: hundred percent. And I always use like gym analogies to destigmatize mental health. But it's like someone who goes to the gym all the time. Okay, well, don't take your pre workout.
1: Yeah. Just do it without <laughs> it.
0: You'll be fine. You can do it without your pre workout. No, but my pre workout helps me. Okay, cool. So you can do it without it but it helps you along the way. Same thing. What's the problem?
1: Yeah, so does yeah. so does antidepressant, so does anti-anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. for you, Angie, what do you feel like in terms of um, those that have experienced similar to you in having experienced childhood sexual abuse, what, I guess, message or um, advice would you give to them if they are kind of moving through the motions of being in a space where they're ready to talk and ready to share?
2: Um, Okay, I want to answer that question. But I wanted to say something about the medication and um, Mm -hmm. before we move on. So one of the things that's happened is that a lot of, uh, at least in America, the way that uh, medication has been prescribed is that there's a psychiatrist, and they go through a questionnaire with the person. And then from there, you know, they checked off the boxes you and then from there, they're like, okay, take this pill. And if this pill doesn't work, take another one. And so it's kind of like a guinea pig kind of like, let's just figure out how we see that find this out. Right. Mm. And so I don't think that approach really works. Because then a lot of people don't feel like, okay, well, is this pill even going to really work for me? And in the meanwhile, like, I'm going to feel other symptoms that like, I don't already feel because we're just trying to see if this even works. Mm. So there's that. And then there's, um, so for example, none of my other therapists tried and checked, you know, hey, let's check for ADHD and all this stuff. And so I think it helps when a therapist that actually gets to know you and gets to see what are your patterns of thinking um, kind of helps more with the diagnosis. And then the other thing was, for example, I'm taking Lexapro and my therapist was the one who explained that that one was the one that was going to help with like my OCD tendencies and the Mm. irritability. And because he was able to connect me to a specific pill that was going to help me. And then I think I saw a post. Do you guys follow Dr. Amen?
0: Yes, I do. (laughs)
2: Okay. So he's a psychiatrist that actually does brain scans for a lot of people. And he's like, he's like, why aren't we doing brain scans for mental health? Like Mm -hmm. every other organ gets some sort of like x ray or something like that. And I think that that's kind of where we have to start going to of like, more of like that, you know, psychologist being able to um, help with the diagnosis, as opposed to just like an evaluation of like, you check off the boxes. And then also, like, it would be better to be able to see our brain scans, which I know it's a lot more money. And not everybody can afford that. But I think that that's also why it's kind of hard for people to go on to medication, when it's not even guaranteed that the first one is going to work. And so for me, what Yeah, so one of the so that's what helped me that it was my therapist, and then that he was able to point to the one that was going to help me that was going to fix this specific solution. And it was crazy, because within that week was when I saw Dr. Amen talk about that pill as well, and talk about the OCD tendencies. And that's what confirmed it for me, like, okay, yes, this is going to work for me. And that's how I ended up with, you know, being more at peace with taking that medication.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, it's the system that can often fail us. And like you said, you know, then feeling like you're a guinea pig and not having that proper support. So is it is that holistic approach of having that support, but also being open to going through that little bit of a trial and error to get to that point where you do have um, the right medication and the right, um, you know, therapist to help you navigate. So. Being a victim survivor of childhood sexual abuse, what advice or message would you like to send to those that have been through similar experiences to you? And, you know, if they're kind of in that place where they're ready to work through it and share with, you know, the people that they feel they need to.
2: I think the biggest thing is to remind yourself that it was not your fault. Yeah. Yeah. I, People told me that at the beginning. It took a really long time for me to really believe that on a subconscious level. Yes. Yep. It's like, logically, I know it wasn't my fault. But it took a really long time for me to really believe it within myself that it wasn't my fault.
1: Yeah. And I think too viscerally in your body, you're like, but it feels like it's my fault. And also, you know, you mentioned at the beginning with all the other messages you were receiving around, you know, men only want you for one thing. And it's like, okay, so yeah, it was my fault. And I, I think it's so simple to say it, but it it's so imperative to a victim survivor of sexual abuse to hear that, know that, realize that and start to embody that because it's not your fault.
2: Exactly. I think that is the hardest thing for a survivor to really integrate into their self. And I think the biggest thing is like, even if you feel shame, like, I guess, for me, the biggest thing with like living the badass life is like pushing yourself. Yeah. Have the courage that maybe, I I don't know, even if you don't have the courage, like push yourself to get some help. Like people want to help you. There's all kinds of therapists. And even if it's not a therapist or a coach, like many people have loved ones that want to be there for you. But sometimes because we're so afraid, we're not willing to reach out. And so I think that's one of the things is like push yourself. It's going to feel uncomfortable. It's not going to feel good at the beginning at all.
1: So we had spoken about your manifest and hike, hike and manifest, um, which I am booking my flight to Arizona very soon so I can come and join you. I was telling Talia, I was like, she hikes and they manifest and they dance on the top of the hill, mountain, sorry. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. So hike and manifest, it's a community for women who have big goals and in this hikes what we do is we talk about like what are you proud of and this is not like okay my five top top achievements of my life are this this and this no it's like within this week what are five things you can be proud of and these Mm -hmm. are not just like um uh, what is it called these are not just things that you did but this could be mind shifts for example i really wanted to have that second glass of alcohol and I tuned into my body and I decided not to. I wanted to yell at my kids today. And instead of yelling, I took a deep breath. Like those things that people don't really give themselves acknowledgement for. And like people all around you, they're never going to know that you did that. But really integrating that within you is so important because a lot of the times we keep thinking, okay, well, I'm still not enough because I still don't have the money. I still don't have the career. And it's like, you're already doing so much. But if you don't integrate that within yourself, then that's why you keep feeling like you're not enough. And so we do exercises like that at the top of the mountain. Uh, We've done like breathing exercises, journaling exercises. We've danced, which is really fun too. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, um, I love this community. It like, it was just like, one of those messages that I kept getting over and over and over again, like every time I would go hiking, I'm like, I want to have deep conversations in the mountains. Like I want this to be my office. Yeah. And so I finally made it my office. It's been almost two years now that I've had um, girls join me and we've talked about their goals, the current struggles, which really feels very supportive to everyone because then they don't feel like they're alone. Um, And then we have like a group accountability chat and once a month, I have a goal setting session so that it like uh, incorporates everything that we're doing. And we have a guest speaker that, you know, either that has been talking about either like health, finances, confidence, we've had different kind of speakers. So all, you know, for
1: manifesting your goals. That sounds so incredible. So anyone listening, next time you're in Arizona, do hike and manifest because it sounds incredible.
2: <laughs> yes, we get beautiful
1: sunrises and beautiful sunsets. You don't want to miss it. No, oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Angie. It's been absolutely incredible speaking to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, ladies. It was so nice to have this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Don't Drown podcast. We upload a new episode each week, so, to stay up to date with everything, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Don't Drown Podcast.